Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Daniel Stedman Jones, the author of Masters of the Universe, Hayek Friedman, and the Birth of Neoliberal Politics. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Daniel, how are you? Very well, thank you, Heath. I'm very, very pleased to be doing the podcast today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I love the book. The book's gotten a lot of a lot of interest, and I've talked to a number of people who uh, either have read it or are interested in reading it. And so it's a it's a fascinating uh, topic, and I think your treatment of it is really is really interesting. Thank you. Um, you. You write about economics, but you're not an economist, and you you write about politics, but you're not a political scientist. <laughs> so, what is your academic background and and your other professional experiences that inform your methods and, and allow you to approach this subject in such a thoughtful way. Um, well, it, it, it's good that you raised, that you raised uh, my background and approach, Heath, because uh, in some ways it's uh, fairly distinctive, um, and I think it did, it did lead me to do, the book, to do the book in the way that I, that I did it in the end. And I suppose, my, I mean, my background is originally I got, um, I left, uh, Oxford as an undergraduate and worked in politics and policy in Britain uh, and for a think tank called Demos um, which in the early 2000s the late 90s and early 2000s was very close to the then Labour government um, and uh, while I was doing that I um, got very interested in transatlantic policy exchange um, initially actually in relation to, to Clinton and Blair uh, and uh, Brown and the, the the links between the New Democrats and the new the new Labour Party as Blair uh, uh, renamed the party, um, and so that kind of got me thinking about transatlantic policy. But I'd done history in a, as an undergraduate, and I um, have always had a love for history, if you like. Uh, and so I wanted um, when I left the policy world and I moved to America actually to do my masters initially in the political science department at Penn working with uh, Roger Smith and others. Um, I wanted to marry politics and history, I think, even even then, I suppose, in the, in the sort of in institutional... Um, well, uh, the, the more uh, American political development or more historical side, I suppose, of, Amer- of, of American political science, I was coming at it from that angle. Uh, and then, having done my master's in the political science department, I worked with Michael Katz, who was my supervisor, uh, ultimately for my PhD, um, who again transcends history and, and politics in a sense. Michael Katz uh, being a sort of you know, eminent historian of, of, of American, of the American welfare state, really. Um, and he supervised me in the history department, ultimately, to do this very political project. So um, it was a sort of an eclectic mix of history, politics, transatlantic uh, thinking and policy influences, if you like, um, that led me to do the book that I did, uh, ultimately. Yeah, and, and I think this, this varied background really does um, add to uh, what you've written. Um, let's talk about the book. Um, you describe three phases of neoliberalism. That's right. Um, why did you choose to write about the second of these, this period between about the 1950s and about the 1980s? What was the reason for that choice? Um, I chose that period actually because I think it's crucial to what I was most interested in 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 a way which was how did neoliberal ideas break through politically Um, uh, there's a lot of discussion there has been a lot of writing a huge amount 
in, in both social science, political science, uh, about really the, in a sense, globalization, if you like, of neoliberal thought, particularly as it's come to dominate the development agenda, um, the famous Washington consensus that everyone speaks about. Um, but there was very little actually uh, detailed understanding of how initially neoliberal ideas break through uh, in both Britain and America. Um, interestingly, I think in America, people assume that free markets are sort of as American as apple pie, as it were. Um, and there isn't an interrogation sometimes. There, is, there often is, but there isn't always an interrogation of what brand of free market thinking or free market politics uh, is actually being spoken about. So in the American context, there's that. In British context, there's a, there was always um, uh, a eulogization in a sense, which we've recently seen a, a rebirth of with Thatcher's death, of Thatcher and the heroic uh, rise of the new rights. Uh, and in both of those, I mean, in, in different ways, if you like, I wanted to challenge uh, those cosy assumptions and I wanted to look at where, what, you know, how neoliberal thought came to uh, dominate the political agendas on both sides of the Atlantic, actually. You know, and, and in placing it in this historical context, I think you really do make this point clear about, about just how radical this time period, particularly the early period, was. Um, and, and what its reaction was to the sort of the world around it. And so um, we kind of take for granted, as you suggest, uh, many of these ideas. Um, but these were not new ideas, but, but certainly different than the sort of the status quo in that, in that, that time period, which we'll talk a little bit about. Um, as your title indicates, you focus a lot on Hayek and Friedman, but also Popper and others. Um, but I was I was uh, struck, and you, you touched on it. The sort of standing off stage through much of the book is Adam Smith, yeah. um, and and you suggest that, that Smith is very important, but also misunderstood and, and on occasion misrepresented. So, what is the role that Smith plays in the development of this neoliberalism during the second phase? How important is he to these um, figures like Hayek and Friedman and others? I think Smith brings a legitimacy. Uh, that is somewhat unwarranted, but is, is, is claimed very clearly by neoliberals. They want to claim um, both neoliberals of the well, especially let's talk about the Chicago School, you know, Milton Friedman, um, George Stigler, uh, and then ultimately also the politicians, so Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan most famously, but other politicians within their uh, governments and, 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 and their influences. These both both the economists of the Chicago School and the politicians, they want to claim Adam Smith. It lends uh, a legitimacy. It lends a sense of con continuity, if you like, um, between their ideas and a, a sort of classical heritage, if you like, uh, going back to the 18th century. Now, of course, I don't mean to say that there are no similarities between some of what Smith said and certainly some of what Smith was describing in his economic history and uh, in the wealth of nations and what the subsequent neoliberal thinkers of the Chicago School uh, thought. But what I, what I want to, 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 to really analyse in the book or look at uh, in terms of Smith was the fact that actually he, that there is a willful misunderstanding of, of what, it, what Smith means when he, when he speaks of the free market and the invisible hand and 
actually the absence often in, in neoliberal uh, interpretations or readings of Smith of the uh, the crucial other dimension to Smith's thought, which is the idea of cultivated moral sympathy. Um, so that self-interested individuals do not simply pursue through their selfishness ends that create social or, or collective goods in the way that neoliberals want us to believe. In fact, self-interest in the Smithian sense is a much, much more nuanced concept. And it's a, it's a concept that doesn't equate very easily to some of the policy outcomes that we see in, in the 80s that, uh, you know, if we're being um, uh, crude about it, the sort of greed is good culture, um, which was, a, was celebrated by neoliberal politicians, uh, certainly. Yeah, and this often happens as we move from the intellectual debate to, to other kinds of debates that uh, details are lost and, and sure. become... Um, and, and, that's, and that's much of what you, you write about. These, these intellectuals come together, but they do more than just write about freedom and markets. Um, they also begin to build institutions, and many of those institutions are transatlantic in nature. Uh, one of those institutions is the Malt Pelerin Society, um, which, which I, I, people sort of always hear about, but I think many people think of as sort of a secret society that existed uh, in the shadows. Yes. It, it, that's probably not the way it actually exists, but it sure does feel that way when, when, you, when it's uh, sometimes talked about. So tell us about the Mont Pelerin Society. What is it? How did it function? Um, how important was it during that time period you studied, and is it still around with us today? Um, I think, yeah, you're right to bring up the Mont Pelerin Society because it's a very important bridge, I think, um, between the early neoliberalism that I described in the book, um, which, if you like, could be thought of as the first phase, which I don't spend a huge amount of time on, but I do, I, I, I do uh, discuss at the beginning of the book. Um, and the second phase, which I think uh, is characterized by a, a sort of more active uh, American contingent, if you like, uh, of neoliberals, Hayek, uh, found the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947 um, on the back of uh, his, his attempts to really challenge the, what he saw as the dominant collectivist agenda, which had been uh, shaped, as he saw it, by um, more liberal or, or in, in the European sense, left-wing left, uh, think tanks. Uh, so in Britain, that was famously the Fabian Society, um, and also uh, the origins of, of the LSE really being um, uh, an institution that was built by the Fabians and by the Webbs. Uh, and then in the American context, the, the Brookings Institution uh, would, be, would be a good example, which I think was founded in 1916 or thereabouts. So, but, but Hayek is especially focused on the success of the Fabian Society, and he sees um, progressive, uh, the progressive policy world, as it were, and their success in shaping mainstream politics leading through the early 20th century, again in the British context, the, the new liberalism of, of Lloyd George and Herbert Henry Asquith, but of course in the American context, most famously the New Deal, uh, building on, on the sort of reforms of the progressive era uh, and the uh, sort of new forms of radical activist liberalism, we might think. Um, and, and what Hayek's trying to do, obviously, is refocus, as he saw it, back on the uh, classical or individual 
the, f- the focus on individual liberty of classical liberalism. Um, in in order to do this, he sees the Montpellier Society as, cru- as a crucial way of linking up um, liberal or neoliberal thinkers uh, in the various pockets in which they, he saw them as being isolated across Europe and in America. And in 1947, the first, uh, among the first attendants uh, uh, at the conference in Montpellier in Switzerland were, um, Mo- were Milton Friedman, George Stigler, and James Buchanan, um, who would all become the leaders of the Chicago School and the Virginia School in the post-war period in America. And so I, I think that's a sort of very important hinge point in the development of neoliberalism, away from the concerns of Hayek, which were primarily based on on Britain and the Depression in the 1930s, and the Second World War, which was primarily in this in the context of the neoliberals, a European uh, war, because they were reacting against um, uh, the totalitarianism of, of both left and right, Stalinism, fascism, um, and then moving into the sort of post-war period where I think neoliberalism is really developed by. Americans in, in primarily in Chicago and Virginia who are uh, characterized by very different concerns of rising pro- prosperity on the one hand but also the Cold War uh, context of, of fighting communism and, and, and really seeking to define American capitalism in opposition to that. In terms of just actually functioning, were, was the society arranged... Um to hold convenings, or was it a source of publishing? Um, what was the manner of transmission of ideas during that time period, lacking some of the methods that we have today? It, it was, um, it, well, it was basically, it would be, there would be regular meetings and papers would be given at those meetings, and they, in that sense, ideas would be exchanged uh, in quite a closed environment actually initially um, but the idea was that those ideas would then be transmitted through uh, different think tanks really that spread out outwards from the core of the Montpellier Society so you get in America obviously the American Enterprise Institute the foundation for economic education both of which were founded in the 40s which actually uh, in the American Enterprise well in both cases they proceed the uh, foundation of the Montpellier Society, but both become very important as uh, propounders of some of the ideas that emerge from uh, the discussions, if you like, between the different thinkers, um, European and American thinkers primarily in that period. Um, and, and a similar thing happens in, in Britain with the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is founded in, in the mid-50s. Um, and these organizations consciously popularized the ideas in a sense that the high elite intellectuals of the Montpellier and Society uh, generate and discuss between themselves. And the other thing about the, the Montpellier and Society, which I think is very important and, and uh, presages the, one of the most important themes, if you like, to neoliberal thinking, is its cosmopolitan nature. So although what I'm describing in, in terms of the shift in the locus of activity from Europe to America is definitely a feature, it is still also the case that um, neoliberal thinkers are uh, a cosmopolitan bunch, and they're both, you know, they're from Europe and eventually from other places like Japan and and, uh, uh, and America too. So it's a real exchange, and Australia and so on. So there's a real exchange, an international exchange of like-minded uh, elite 
uh, economists, historians, journalists, writers, uh, liberal activists of one sort or another. Part of um, the story you tell is, is not um, it's not linear in nature. Um, no. Friedman, um, for one, uh, is is rejected in his, his uh, initial efforts to influence policy, um, and there were conflicts. Uh, in in trying to to sort of move his agenda forward. That's right. So, what was the initial skepticism to Friedman and neoliberalism, both in the U.S. and the U.K. and and how did they ultimately break through and and have this major footprint uh, on the Thatcher and Reagan administrations? Uh, if you go back to the earlier thoughts about Adam Smith and the imperfect application of his of his ideas, I think this is a key. Um, feature, if you like, of the transition from the academy to politics and policy uh, is the distortion, mutation of ideas as that process happens. And I think what you, uh, I I start the book with a a quote from Keynes uh, talking about the importance of ideas uh, of long forgotten academic scribblers um, being taken up sort of 30 years later by by policymakers. And I think in the 50s and 60s in both America and Britain, crudely speaking, policymakers were in the grip of Keynesian or neo-Keynesian economic techniques of demand management and uh, fiscal fine-tuning, really, which um, seemed to be delivering results. What Friedman himself admitted is that... uh, he was banging his head against a brick wall for much of that period, and certainly in the 60s, when he was becoming prominent, uh, without people listening, because uh, it was what, it's when the facts on the ground change that people really start to turn to alternatives. And one of the key, uh, or one of the crucial import, uh, important facts, if you like, about the neoliberal agenda was that people like Friedman and Stigler had ready-made ideas that when the time came that the existing policy techniques seemed to be failing, policymakers could turn and say, ah, here we have, you know, a, a, a critique of economic regulation from Stigler, so we can pursue a policy of deregulation, which was initially uh, pursued by Carter, uh, or indeed in terms of monasterism, uh, Friedman seemed to have a solution to the problem of stagflation. Uh, the money supply was controlling the money supply was key to controlling inflation. It seemed to be a simple proposition that was workable and that was immediately usable. And I think that those, it was once you get the break, you get the the emergence of stagflation, the breakdown of the international monetary system and the collapse of Bretton Woods, when these things, and the oil crisis, when these these three uh, crises, or these multiple crises, if you like, happen in the 70s, that is the moment at which neoliberal ideas are taken up. So, n- neoliberalism, as, as you note in the book, is, is in a, a third phase of sorts today, maybe even in, into a fourth. Mm. Um, but you suggest the term, you know, it's so often misused today. Is there still value in using the term? Um, you know, has, it, has the meaning of that, this term neoliberalism um, been so detached from its intellectual history that it, that it causes more confusion than clarity in either intellectual debates or, or policy debates. W- what is the value of this uh, in today's context? That's an interesting uh, question because 
it, with my pure historian's head on, I think the, the term neoliberal is so far removed from its original meaning uh, that it may be use, useless now to use it. Um, so, for example, the original neoliberals in the 30s and 40s thought of themselves as trying to find a middle way between the laissez-faire economics of uh, the 19th century and the night watchman state of uh, the Manchester School uh, in, in Britain, particularly, which they saw as being too uh, sparse and not interventionist enough in certain key respects. Um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the totalitarianism uh, of that, that was being witnessed in, in in Europe, but also the threat of uh, totalitarianism that they that the neo the early neoliberals saw in the policies of Roosevelt and the music and those kinds of activist, uh, corporatist uh, policies. So they really did want to refocus on individual liberty from that sort of totally different perspective, if you like, to the, last, to the, to the perspective of the last 30 years, um, where neoliberalism is simply a, uh, a byword almost for globalisation. Um, however, to the extent that neoliberalism now refers to limited government, deregulation, uh, low taxes, it's probably worth keeping as a short term, as a shorthand um, for the dominant policies of the last 30 years. So with my pragmatic uh, political head on, if you like, I think neoliberalism is a good term to use for the dominant policy paradigm, really, uh, of the Anglo uh, Anglo-American or the Anglo-Saxon uh, economic models of the last 30 years, and that model, whether it's being, whether it's under threat or whether it's changing, or whether it uh, is proving its tenacity and continuing to dominate, um, is is yet to be is yet to be made clear. I mean, the, the, the crash of 2008 was obviously a moment at which this could have come apart, but. Both Obama and, and certainly the, the politicians in Britain here at the moment, uh, in many ways, have rather uh, have continued with that paradigm rather than challenged it in fundamental ways. Um, so it's a useful term, I think, to still to hold on to because I think uh, it really has dominated the politics on both sides, the economic and social policies on both sides of the Atlantic. So, since Reagan and Thatcher were elected, and, and probably a few years before as well. I, I got a, a ton out of the book, and I'm very curious about what's next for you. You're not in a traditional academic setting now, so are there is there uh, uh, more in the way of, of your scholarship to come, or have you put that on hold in any way? What's uh, what's in front of you right now? Um, no, I very much. Uh, well, I think you're referring to the fact that I'm, I'm now a barrister, which is essentially a trial lawyer. Um, in, in Britain and I, I, I work mainly on environmental uh, and planning cases uh, over here um, but I very much hope I was in in America in the States recently uh, doing various things in relation to the book I very much hope to continue writing history and politics uh, as far as I can and that my immediate next uh, task is to think about my next book which would be something looking a bit more uh, I suppose that what the sources of a regeneration of 
liberal democratic or in, Amer- in European terms social democratic politics might be and whether it's possible in fact given my own trajectory having, having studied in America and lived in Britain and grown up there uh, whether it's possible to marry European and American traditions of progressive thought uh, and so it would be a sort of again uh, a, a marriage of politics and history uh, to, to, to sort of focus I guess on the other side of the political spectrum well, you'll have to promise to come back when that uh, when that book is, is finished. The, the current book, Masters of the Universe, Hayek, Friedman, and the Birth of Neoliberal Pol- uh, Politics, is published by Princeton University Press, available at their website and Amazon, I'm sure. Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It's been a pleasure.